0: Hey everybody, welcome to the 8th episode of Drive Through FM. Today I've got something a little extra special for you all. I'm going to be joined by Rodney Smith of Watch It Played, and him and I are going to kind of dual tandem interview James Hewitt, who was the lead rules writer on the new version of Necromunda that is releasing in the next couple of weeks by the time that you hear this. It'll probably be up for pre-order at the time that you hear this, So if not in the next day or two. And if you're not familiar with Necromunda, it was a game that originally came out from Games Workshop back in 1995 and had a couple of different iterations uh, around about then. And now it's been kind of somewhat dormant, although the community at large has been keeping that game very active, but it's been officially dormant for quite some time and now it's being brought back and has uh, some significant changes and some significant uh, similarities to the original game. So we're gonna go ahead and jump into the interview here in just a second. Uh, After the interview, I'll go ahead and do a couple of reviews and also just kind of do a little bit of uh, normal podcasty type thing. So this episode will be uh, slightly longer than normal. The interview runs about an hour. uh, And then, uh, so we'll do the extra stuff after that to kind of wrap everything up. And um, just wanted to mention here, you haven't probably seen a video review for me in a little over a week or so, uh, just everything's been kind of crazy with uh, Halloween, and there was just a lot of things going on that weekend and everything around there, so I've been sort of dormant in terms of the drive through stuff, uh, and then trying to also schedule this interview was very difficult because I'm in Pacific time zone, uh, Rodney is in Atlantic time zone, way over on... Uh, the far eastern side of Canada. And of course, James is in the UK. Uh, So trying to arrange all those different time zones was a little bit of a feat. Uh, But let's just go ahead and jump right into the interview now. And then uh, you you can stay after if you like and listen to a couple of reviews. Okay, so I am now joined by a couple of fine gentlemen. Uh, One is I would call a Necromunda superfan. And the other one I might be a super fan. He's definitely a super designer. Uh, first, let's jump in and introduce uh, Rodney Smith of Watch It Palade. Hello, Rodney.
1: Hello, Joel. Yes, I am a super fan of Necromunda. It was my uh, my first foray into miniatures games back in 1995. That was my first miniatures game. I remember seeing it in the comic book store at this crazy, gory cover. All these giant dudes shooting guns at each other. There's no way any of them could have been alive because they would have all been struck by bullets from the first second. But it was just (laughs) this crazy psychedelic box of violence and I was just like, what is in this box? I need to find out. And it was my first foray into um, Miniters games was Necromunda.
0: Awesome. And just for the record, I never played Necromunda. I heard mostly about it from Rodney. (laughs) I have played a newer edition sort of thing uh, that came out maybe not quite a year ago, called Shadow War Armageddon, which uses the same rule set, but set more in the Warhammer 40k universe proper, and I've enjoyed that. Um, And uh, Roddy Smith, if you have been living under a rock, of course, does the Watch It Play channel with lots of board game playthroughs and instructional videos and all kinds of other great content.
1: And the occasional miniatures game.
0: Yes, occasional (laughs) miniatures game as well. You did a great um, playthrough and rules instructions for Shadespire. That That's, right?
1: Yeah, Shadespire and, and, and uh, Guild Ball was another sort of recent miniatures game as well that it featured. But yeah, yeah, Shadespire was a really fun one to do recently because it kind of did that nice thing of bridging the gap, I think, between like a full-on miniatures game and the board game spectrum of, of
0: gaming. And our guest of the hour, our featured guest, is James Hewitt. I hope I pronounced that correctly, James. I didn't ask you before we started. No, you absolutely did. I'm not quite sure how else you could pronounce it, but I think however you want to is fine by me. And James is, would you call yourself a co-designer of the new Necromunda? Um,
2: Yeah, so I was lead rules designer. So um, I was part of the specialist games team at uh, Games Workshop until July of this year. Uh, It's quite a small team. There were at the time three of us, give or take, uh, the occasional sculptor. And uh, so that was my boss, Andy, who is kind of, he was the manager of the team, still is. Um, I was in charge of rules, design, and that whole kind of thing. Then we had a couple of sculptors as well. So, yeah, so really the, the rules side of the game uh, was me. Uh, and I'm also a Necromunda superfan
0: because you have to be t- to do that kind of thing. Yes. So, yeah, so let's take a quick detour from Necromunda and get more into James. Uh, speaking of superfan, I have a list of kind of questions here Rodney and I are going to give you back and forth um but i'm a little cool. bit curious about kind of your gamer origin story so like what was the first game that made you kind of fall in love make you want to design games uh that kind of thing yeah. and how did you kind of come up into all of this
2: so um board games uh have kind of been quite a big thing in my family i think for a long time i remember my aunt and uncle had a massive board game covered all kind of uh Party games, uh, kind of stuff, you know, charades, Trivial Pursuit, the kind of more more normal side of the spectrum, uh, so to speak. Um, but really, for myself, it was when I got given a copy of Hero Quest for my oh. birthday uh, back in 87, 88. That would have been, and uh, my dad got that for me. And as I'm an only child. And none of my friends were interested. He immediately regretted that because <laughs> I kept going to him to play it with me. Um, and to this day, I've never gotten to play a game. I will eventually one day do it. So he never caved, um, but he yes, never I caved g- to you. No, no. There are actually I've still got the copy, and there are one or two uh, of the character sheets um, that are filled in. I dug it out recently because. Um, my mum moved house, so I was, I was unpacking things. And uh, there are some character sheets that are kind of testament to games where I tried to get him <laughs> to take part. And uh, he's like written bad jokes for the names of the characters, and then we gave up five, ten minutes in. Um, it's a tragic, tragic tale. A common but, tale, but, um, I think, for a lot of gamers. Yeah. But despite that...
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, despite that, it really kind of, um, you know, really set me going on the the dark path that's led to where I am today um so I, I got into games workshop uh, games through hero quest and space crusade um, and through a couple of friends at school who were passing around a copy of white dwarf magazine um this would have been around issue 175 i think was when i got into it and yeah i, I was a big games workshop gamer for a long time got into some tabletop role-playing games um and through that uh playing a game at a gaming club, uh, sorry, a local gaming store in fact, um, I spotted this would have been about 10 years ago a board game on, the, on one of the shelves called Last Night on Earth which is uh, kind of a zombie B-movie style right. board game and as a fan of schlock horror movies I was like "What? What? this looks cool, what is this and that began my descent into board gaming uh, which I've not looked back from so um, these
0: days, I, I, I love games of all sorts, really. Um, I saw you posted uh, on Twitter there about Pandemic Legacy Season 2. It seems like you're a fan of that series. Yes.
2: Yeah, we've we've just hit... Um, oh, I think we're just, just into March now, so no spoilers, but it's really cool. Uh, we did, uh, myself and my partner Sophie, we did uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 in the month leading up to our daughter being born. Uh, so we were both kind of pretty stressed out generally uh and we thought you know what we need to do <laughs> let's just play a really cool game and um did the entire thing in about two weeks nice. um which was really cool we, we really enjoyed it um but yeah so that's kind of that's my in a nutshell um gaming life i suppose and, and now
0: i do it for a living so would you say you're more of a board game or are you more of like did do you get into the miniature side of 40k and the warhammer fantasy or age of sigmar
2: yeah, it, it all depends on what uh, I'm up to at the time, really. So um, at the moment, because uh, as I say, we've got a two-year-old now, um, don't get a lot of time for painting um, or playing kind of big, elaborate campaigns. For me, uh, miniatures games, um, I really enjoy like uh, campaign gaming, linking things together, doing a big narrative, that whole kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Haven't got time for that so much these days, so I'm much happier kind of cracking out a board game Uh, i'm saying this in the middle of a pandemic uh, legacy (laughs) campaign of course i was just thinking that um, same thing
1: but at least that one you can sort of break it into small chunks you know and precisely yeah you're playing at home too i assume right with with absolutely and we haven't got the room for a gaming table right now but yeah
2: so i'm definitely much more into board games have been the last couple of years um and they're just addictive you know what i love with uh board games generally is that every you know box on your shelf is just a lovely idea um, that you can unwrap and get into, and everyone's unique in, in some way. And I love that. Mm-hmm.
1: I love that way of looking at it. That's, you know, every, every box is like some new world to sort of get into, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I kind of have a question for you, thinking about that, because, you know, obviously you've expressed an enjoyment of gaming and hobbies, in the hobby for a long time, but yeah, I'm wondering, yeah. uh, how did you end up at Games Workshop? Like, were there other games you've designed for Games Workshop before you were given the ultimate gift like what made you worthy? What made you worthy to work on Necromunda? Why were you handed this mantle? I want to know. Well, whether I'm
2: worthy, of course, will be determined by the fans when the game comes out. So, right. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah so, so how did I you come kind of, to the
1: Games Workshop? Like, what started that?
2: Well, so it started. I actually started in the retail side of the company uh, okay. back in 2002. Um, I dropped out of a linguistics degree because I realised I was doing a degree in linguistics, and. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love it as a subject, but it's it's not a thing I could, I could stick with to study. Um, but, yeah, I dropped out, needed a job, and a friend of mine had just left um, a part-time Saturday job at the local, local games workshop. So I went in there and, uh, yeah, got hired. Back in those days, it was very different. The, the interview was literally held in the pub across the road uh, and involved a quiz on, I think, the Warhammer rulebook or something. It, it was... <laughs> looking back, it was kind of bizarre. But... Um, I ended up working in retail for Games Workshop for about 10 years, um, ran a couple of stores around the London area, uh, eventually decided to kind of get out into the real world, <laughs> so to speak, um, hated it, and uh, ran back towards the gaming industry. So I worked for Mantic Games uh, on Dreadball, uh, which is oh. kind of my first taste of a design project, um, so I was kind of co-designer on that.
0: It's uh, a great I got game.
2: In, I love that game, by the way. It's, it's good uh... fun. So Dreadball, Blood Bowl, Lookout, Guild Ball. Uh, I'm on the way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: but yeah, I, I worked there for, for about a year as a community manager. So I did a lot of stuff with YouTube videos, uh, Facebook events, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then a position came up at Games Workshop uh, on the rules team. And so I thought, you know what? I really... I want to design rules i i'd wanted to kind of get into game design for it for the longest time i had been doing it i had been kind of inventing uh my own games i think I, I i designed a role-playing game before i played a role-playing game um which in hindsight it, it, it was dreadful because i hadn't played any role-playing games but still game design has always been a thing i've been really keen on and so when the position came up i went for it um and it was actually i think this is that was my fourth time applying for that job i just i'd applied a few times previously at one point i got down to the final two and it was very very close but um, ended up not quite getting at that time Um, but this time as i say because i had a bit more experience in the industry uh, i'd done a bit more stuff in my own life as well i was uh, i was taken on board and yeah i got to work on all sorts of things so when i first turned up um age of sigma was just in development so i was able to kind of contribute to some of the design on that which was really cool worked a load of the which uh, part of uh, the four pages compendium. did
1: you do <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> which paragraph was though. yours <laughs> yeah. the, the four pages thing as I understand it
2: it was um, initially a um, it was meant to be an ethos like make the rules simple enough they could fit on four pages and yes. somewhere along the line that got crystallized into something very literal <laughs> so <laughs> we ended up with four pages of rules I did a load of work on the, uh, the compendiums that came out alongside the main release um, right I wrote the first Stormcast Eternals battle tome, the uh, Gorechosen, Chosen, oh no Gorechosen, Chosen, sorry, Corn uh, Bloodbound, uh, Seraphon, Fireslayers, and Ever Chosen bits of... And that was all in a, in a rules capacity, so I was in the rules team, and there'd always be one person doing the rules, one person doing the narrative
0: in the background, and you'd kind of collaborate together. Um, so you were responsible for the, like, the War Scrolls and the Battalions and that stuff? Yeah,
2: that was it, yeah. Um okay and it's interesting though because it's you're kind of you're one cog in quite a large machine so uh the miniatures are all made first and then they come through to the the publications department who uh, there's a manager like a product manager whose job it is to go right we're going to make this battle tome and we're going to put the here are the units here here's what they're called here's the kind of thing we want them to do and yeah. then uh the rules and background go away and make those things happen Um, And it's all very collaborative. I mean, there was a team of uh, four of us doing rules and uh, it was lots of bouncing ideas around and giving each other lots of constant review, Um, which I won't lie, was an amazing atmosphere to work in. You can imagine that the the, the opportunity to design uh, rules for a living uh, in a nine to five office environment where you're getting constant support and and encouragement is is just unheard of. You know, it's not, not a thing you can do in many places
0: um yeah definitely
2: yeah but uh yeah so that's kind of how i got there um you also said uh, what games i've worked on so i'll say age of sigma uh, i did a fair few things for warhammer Forty did didn't have anything to do with the most recent edition that was after i'd moved on uh but i did a few codexes and things before that and then also I did three standalone games so i did the uh, horus heresy betrayal at calf which was like a hex based uh tactical skirmish game right uh Gore Chosen, uh, which... Yep. Another Hex-based... Hang on a second. What is it with Hexes? Um, <laughs> there's something and then, here. <laughs> yeah. Did and you then, try to get Hexes uh, into Quest. Age of
1: Sigmar? <laughs> so, yeah. Age, Age of Hexmar. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs>
2: yeah. And, uh, and yeah, uh, Warhammer Quest Silver Tower, which was... It almost drove me mad. It was a labor of love, and I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... That's that's probably my favorite of the three. Uh, well, I haven't actually played Betrayal at Calth yet. Uh, that's mm. one that's it's on my long, very long to do list. But uh, yeah, uh, I
2: think about but, twelve people have played it. Everyone else bought it for the miniatures, found some <laughs> yeah. cardboard bits, and threw them out a
1: window. Um. Well, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because I think um, some of the box games that we saw from Games Workshop, mm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't fault anyone. For looking at them yeah. sometimes and going oh this is a miniatures delivery system and there's there's some rules that were thrown in here if you happen to want to play a game but the main thing is yeah. look at the great price on all these great miniatures but i really feel like the there's been a shift in games workshop games oh, lately yeah. where the game is equal to if not as good as the you know or better than the the miniatures themselves there's something actually there yeah. to play like when I mean, you talked about the silver tower like that's a game that really had a lot going on some in, interesting yeah. innovation and all the rest of it so um yeah for a while there there
2: was kind of the, the brief that the rules team were given were uh, would would be like here is a bunch of miniatures we're putting them out in a game um and what we were often told was make it so that there's a game you know don't break your back on it make it so there's enough game here for people to play it a few times but really this is a miniatures box um i I I struggle with doing something like that if if I'm going to do a thing I want to really throw myself into it which is why Betrayal at Cal Silver Tower, um, Gorchos, and they all kind of ended up being a little bit more elaborate than what was intended and I think if you stack them up against some of the other games that were done at the same time they were a little bit more involved Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing I don't know Um, but uh, since pretty much just after I left um, there was a kind of a change in some of the management structure and there was a push back towards doing more games for the sake of games. Right. Uh, and I think Shadespire is kind of the culmination of that. I, I think that's a great product. Um, because yeah, it is, it's, it's targeting a niche that I think games workshop hasn't looked at in certainly a very long time, which is the kind of the competitive pick up and play game. It's kind of an X wing contender, that kind of thing, you know, right. um, designed for organized play, um, independent stockists all
1: that kind of thing
2: which is brilliant um, when i was in that team that was a thing that would never have have even been considered so i'm I'm really happy that that's out now
1: well i'll say given your answer to that question i'm a little more confident in them having hand the reins over to you for necromunda we'll see <laughs> as this goes on but so far i'm feeling pretty good excellent that's good
0: well, well speaking of necromunda so i was a little curious you you said you're a super fan so you might yeah. have already answered this question but so you played it when it came out or what's your kind of experience yeah with it? um so white dwarf uh i think it was september
2: 1995 there was it was the month before necromunda came out and like on the, in, the, in the first couple of pages there was uh like a photo of a bunch of the guys in the studio playing this new game called necromunda and it talked about gang war in the 41st millennium and i was like this sounds freaking awesome <laughs> um and i remember i was i, I got very excited with my, my, a bunch of gaming buddies and we talked about it how cool it was going to be we were you know assuming all sorts of things making all sorts of guesses when it came out uh had to get it and i pl- i've played it on and off ever since um so i had an orlock gang when when it first came out who were kind of they were like the default really you know they were your standard they were in the box set they were one of the first metal kits to come out But I had that, I I ran, I was the guy that always ran the campaigns uh, for my group, um, which is kind of, it's endured to this day, I'm always the one that ends up reading the rulebook for whatever game we play, and uh, yeah, so I was there with Necromunda for that whole time. When um, Underhive came out in like early 2000s, which was the uh, Fnatic Games release, which was like an updated version of it, um, I was there for that, I was working in retail, ran several campaigns through the stores I was working in. Uh, as well as a few uh, with some buddies at the time, I had a scavy gang that I'd converted up out of various other gangers because I quite liked the idea that they were just a bunch of degenerate mutants um, rather than the, the particularly weird-looking alien-type uh, mutant scavies that you had the actual miniatures for. But yeah, as I say, I've, I've dabbled with Necromonda for years. I actually... Um, when i had a, a brief break in my employment with games workshop i was working in a, a local government benefits office which was really exciting and <laughs> Sounds um it was <laughs> and i spent uh, i was answering phone calls with people who had various issues and if i had a quiet day i was working on like my magnum opus which was i was going to rewrite necromunda uh, <laughs> and funnily enough a lot of what was in that ended up kind of going into uh well, what I've just finished working on recently. So, Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah, that's wild. It, yeah, it, it just goes to show, um, never throw anything away.
1: <laughs> you never know when it will come in handy. So you, you were basically brought in to, to work on this design. Now, were you given any particular parameters about like how new necromunda should be shaped like i was almost kind of curious too like where did the design start did you just go back to the original necromunda did you go back to kind of the revised were you looking at the living rule book for this or, or where did you begin
2: so um this came in after i'd left the main games workshop rules team um i joined the what was the new specialist games team um And the whole point of that was we were going to, it was a very small, agile team, and we were going to bring back old games from, you know, the 80s, 90s, that whole kind of time. And um, Necromunda was the third thing I'd worked on there. Um, I'll tell you more about the others later, if you like. But um, by the time we got to Necromunda, we kind of had an idea, um, especially based off Blood Bowl. We had an idea of what worked uh, and what
0: didn't. And... So when it came, do you to mean? This, oh, sorry to interrupt, but do you mean yeah. the most recent uh, release of Blood Bowl, or just yes, entirely? indeed,
2: yeah? So that was so okay. I, I oversaw the uh, the rules design on that as well, although most of it was just a re-release of existing rules. Um, right. But our, our team was responsible for that that game, and um, so with Necromunda, uh, there were a lot of uh, guidelines and kind of parameters for what the design would be before it got to me. Um, okay. so we had um, so my boss Andy uh, Andy Hoare who's still the manager of the team there uh, he again is a massive Necromunda fan, I think he's played it roughly once a week for the last 20 years and uh, he, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating he, he, he's been playing a, a Necromunda campaign for longer than I care to imagine. Well I have to say um, if you're a
1: Necromunda fan that's very encouraging to hear right, to know that the design oh, yeah. team is actually quite invested knows the game well uh, and has some yeah. experience with it. Yeah,
2: yeah when we actually when we came together as a team, it was one of the things that initially we were like, We're gonna do Necromunda and we're gonna do an awesome job of it because we, we, we knew that we were all fans of it and so yeah, we had to do it justice. Um so yeah, so Andy kind of had his thoughts on what the game wanted to be. Um he was really keen to bring back some of the kind of the retro old school stuff he's big on his is kind of retro gaming. Um he wanted to bring in some of the stuff from Rogue Trader and the early editions of Warhammer forty thousand. Um, he also wanted to sh- uh, switch up the activation system a little bit. He had a, kind of some ideas for like a card system, which sort of ended up making it in. And as I say, similarly, the kind of people above him uh, had ideas about how this should be a product, um, which is how it ended up being like your self-contained boxed game with an expansion uh, for the campaigns, the 3D rules, all that kind of thing. So there was a lot uh kind of going into into it for 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 my point uh point of view i was really keen to kind of modernize the game a bit because i was very conscious that much as necromond is really good fun and i love it it's showing its age you know it's very much got a lot of 80s uh, design ethos in there i mean it was a game that came out in the mid 90s but the main rule set was really based on Warhammer 40,000 Second Edition, which had been around for several years before that, and even that was based quite heavily on Rogue Trader, which had, you know, been I think another five years before then. So, all I wanted to do with this was was modernize it and make it a game that I I wanted to play as much as I wanted to play the first one when it first came out.
1: Yeah, I was, I'm I'm curious to hear that as well because I mean, um, not a criticism on on Blood Bowl or whatever, but it, yeah. it has a lot of the carryovers from the original Blood Bowl. And I, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, in in 20 years, game design evolves, right? And so oh, absolutely. Um, if you if you can tap into some of those improvements or efficiencies yeah. or whatever, that seems like a good strategy to take. I, as much as I wanted Necromunda back, I didn't really just want old Necromunda back. I could just play that anytime. I was kind of looking Precisely. for something that took me back to that place, but maybe rules-wise was more streamlined or, or was was, um, was different, improved, yeah. and modernized, as you say.
2: That was absolutely the way I was going. Blood Bowl was a really weird one because um, it has such a large tournament scene. Um, Mm. There are tens of thousands of people who are playing it on a regular basis. There are uh, ranked leagues going on and they had refined the rules um, to to the point where any small change was really significant to uh, a large established (laughs) fan base. And so we were kind of in this weird place where we didn't want to just release... A set of rules that was already out there but we also didn't want to change anything so we ended up just re-releasing it as it was and then adding bits onto it once you know once that that was out there and uh, so that was but yeah with necromond that that wasn't such an issue we were happier to just go this is a new edition of the game if you'd wanted the old rules they're out there um because it was a living rule book for a while there are pdfs yes. freely available You've got the Necromunda Community Edition, which the fans picked up and have been kind of refining and tweaking for a long time. So if right. you want that particular old school experience, that's
0: absolutely still there. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will be buying the new miniatures just to play the old game. So one thing to kind of follow up with that is, before we get into any rules things, um, yeah. it's a boxed game. So it's, it's more like a board game out of the, bo- out of the gate. Yeah. And so you mentioned... I think well actually I think I read this in the latest white dwarf where there was some sort of sort of cost uh, consideration for the initial buy in. So yeah, you can get yeah. the initial box for you know 120 bucks US. Um, I don't know what that converts to everywhere but it that's much more approachable than filling a 4 by 4 table with a bunch of terrain and all that stuff and yeah. but you still have a 3D supplement called gang war i believe right that's it so yes, indeed what's kind of the thought process there between you know supporting two different rule sets and how is that actually going to work is it going to be the same game on the board as it is you know on the miniature tabletop and all that yeah stuff?
2: i mean it's it, it there were a lot of things going into it so i mean the decision to to split it that way that was kind of done above my station but i was involved in a lot of the conversations around it and um the big thing that was going to be difficult was the days of Games Workshop doing a big box of cardboard scenery are kind of gone. Um, there's a couple of uh, I think the, the starter sets for 40k and Age of Sigmar now have like uh, you can use the, the box tray as a building. But um, yeah, you certainly couldn't do a load of cardboard walkways and that because it's just the quality of the stuff's moved on now. It would have felt really odd to do that.
1: James, maybe I should just mention here quickly just because some people might not be familiar with yeah, the original sure. Necromunda, but yeah, it came with a box of miniatures and what was kind of unique about it was it came with a bunch of 3D terrain, leveled awesome. terrain. But it was, yeah, it was it <laughs> yeah. was awesome. Yeah. But it was like, like you said, it was some some plastic braces to hold things up and then cardboard pieces. So I think when this new edition was released, people were maybe wondering, expecting what kind of 3D terrain is gonna be packed into the box and then yeah. it mm-hmm. wasn't there. And that's, I guess, what Joel's getting at here. So there had to be a decision about that, right?
0: Well, I will say, uh, when, when we play Shadow War, we actually my buddies have their big Necromunda fans, yeah. and they still have their old uh, Necromunda cardboard and plastic bits, <laughs> yes. and we we yeah, mix it all course. together just you know add a bunch of line of sight blocking, but yeah, um, but that stuff you know surprisingly held up pretty well. Um, yeah, But anyway, I'm kind of tangenting <laughs>
2: there But <laughs> Well yeah. yeah, so I mean The whole thing really started with um, The scenery, the Sector Mechanicus scenery that was, that was coming out uh, We were like, well that's coming out so we can do Necromunda That was because in our mind You can't do Necromunda without a big cool 3D um, oh, yeah. Table That was our, our first thought um, At the same time uh, The main studio Had the same idea Which is where Shadow War came from um, which was kind of strange because it meant they were Using the Necromunda rules With kind of the serial number Filed off um, <laughs> <I think. laughs> I, you know. And uh, We then were developing A brand new Necromunda At the same time, it was all, it was all a little bit Of a, of a, a, a weird situation there Well but... was, there,
0: was there, did you guys each Know that the other was doing um,
2: They definitely knew that we were Doing Necromunda um, we started Necromunda before Shadow War began development, okay. uh, and I, I don't know how uh, you know how conscious a decision it was to make it quite as Necromundary as it was. Um, but whatever the case, it was two different teams working on a similar thing in a similar time, which I think really then blindsided all the fans because when Shadow War came out, it was like, well, that's that's Necromunda pretty much. So. Right. Probably there won't be a Necromunda for some time And then we came out and said, oh by the way, Necromunda <laughs> but,
1: but yeah, as I say so I went we from years, the... years having no Necromunda To suddenly having like more than I could ask it for It's like yeah. waiting for a bus, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but yeah, so Long story short, it was kind of decided that If we were to put A small amount of this plastic terrain Into the box It would inflate the price so much But you still wouldn't have anywhere near enough To play a decent game because the thing with Necromunda, when you're playing on a 3D board you want that kind of tangle of of walkways, you want it to be really dense. Um, and so at some point in the process, the idea came up, hang on, why don't we do two different things and have because you've already got kind of the idea in the narrative, in the background of you know tangles of tunnel networks, and whatever else, running through the hive why not just do that? I mean, Forgeworld produced a set of um, scenery tiles called Zone Mortalis, which is a set of Um, like tangly industrial corridors which are designed for playing games of 40k on and we thought well hang on we can repurpose the idea of that for Necromunda and uh, so what we ended up with was two different ways of playing so you play effectively your tunnel fights uh, Zone Mortalis games as they're called or you play your Sector Mechanicus games which are your, your, your 3D ones the game is absolutely the same either way the only difference from a rules point of view is we put in an abstraction for line of sight on the board game version just because you can't do so the, the main game is true line of sight but that's difficult when there aren't any walls where there should be um right. so the board game version if you want to call it that has got a very simplified kind of line of sight mechanic um but beyond that um for example in a campaign you might play three games in a row two of which are in tunnels one of which is up on the walkways um okay What's really interesting, what I really like, is they they play very differently. Um, So the Zone Mortalis games, which are much more claustrophobic, uh, for a start you can play it on a much smaller area. You can play on um, even uh, two feet square is a really interesting game. Um, And there are lots of doors, the big plastic bulkhead doors that are in there. Uh, they make some really tense moments. Uh, you kind of get, you know get gangs lining up either side of a doorway, waiting for someone to open it, uh, <laughs> and all that kind of you know fl- flinging grenades around corners, uh, sneaking through air ducts. We wanted to make that game as interesting as the three D version. Um, so yeah, so that was that was kind of as I say that that was. The decision for doing the the box game as it was, but then we wanted to do the 3D rules as well, because of course that's you can't you can't do Necromunda and not put in rules for playing across gantries and walkways. That'd be crazy. Um, but the thing that had worked quite well with Blood Bowl, uh, because Games Workshop at the moment is 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 expanding into a lot of um, emerging markets. So there are stores opening in like Singapore. Uh, there's a, a decent presence now in Japan. Uh, areas where tabletop gaming is not as big as it is in uh, the western world if you like Um, what Blood Bowl was good with was because it was a self-contained box you could sell that somewhere where there isn't a presence of other things and people can play that without having to expand it at all and so there was a drive to make sure that the Necromondor box game doesn't feel like half a product so if you, if right. you pick that up for the first time, as mm-hmm. a brand new customer, you've never seen it before, you go into the shop, pick it off the shelf, and play it, it's not saying, oh, by the way, you have to add some scenery, or you need to add this other stuff. And so the brief became, the box just contains rules for what's in the box.
0: Um, right. I have to say, I, one too... I noticed that was interesting... Oh, go ahead, Rodney.
1: Okay, well, um, one thing I just want to mention, although we're talking about there being a lack of, you know, 3D, full 3D terrain, I have to say I, I was fortunate I was able to bring home a copy of Necromunda with me from Essenspiel. So I've, I've spent the weekend, this past weekend, assembling all the miniatures yeah. and all the uh, t- terrain because there's a lot of actual plastic terrain pieces. There's a ton of doors. There's a bunch of, like, things to hide behind, busted stuff. There's cool crates that you open up, and inside you can see, like, weapons and stuff stashed in. There's all kinds of little terminals you can play with. All this full plastic plastic... plastic 3D. The miniatures, there's like 10 miniatures for each gang that's included in the box. And when you play a scenario, you might only be playing with six of them. So you have choices. You can make choices about which gangs you're going to play with. So I think what you're saying about being very self-contained, and I should also mention, I just today read through all the the rules, and when I got to the end of that, I did not feel like I just finished reading half of a rule set. Uh, If anything, it was like, wow, there's a lot happening in this game still. It hasn't been uh, let's say, dumbed down, if you will.
2: No, no, absolutely. I mean, there was a huge drive to make sure that that, it not only is a self-contained product, but there's plenty in there. Um, so even if you're just playing with the two starter gangs, the um, the Iron Lords and the Carrion Queens, I think they're called, um, even if you're just playing with that, just playing the, the six scenarios that are in there, you can play through that enough times and everyone will be different. Um, we really wanted to make it feel like if you just pick up this box and nothing else, you're still going to have a really good time with it. And I think, hopefully, fingers crossed, I think we've achieved that. We'll see, though.
1: Yeah, I haven't actually played yet, so I I have to to wait. But I I definitely felt, again, like just through reading it all, and you kind of split the rules into two things. There's kind of like a basic, like, hey, here's enough to get you started, and then when you're ready and you're comfortable with that, here's the full advanced rules, which packs in a whole bunch of other stuff.
2: Yeah, there's lots in there, isn't it? Because I think it starts off... And that that was a big... Uh, there was a lot of judgment calls there. You know, which bits are basic. Which parts are integral to the game experience and which parts kind of add extra flavor. And so things like the ammo roll, I think, only comes in, in, the, in, in the advanced section. You know, where That's right, yeah. You can add bullets. Um, a lot of uh, the advanced combat rules. We wanted to make sure that the basic game... You know, you play through that for your first one or two games and then introduce... The more advanced stuff but but yeah this was definitely not a dumbing down which uh, i'm quite happy with because i didn't want to dumb this game down
1: right and obviously there were there are some differences between the new edition and the original what what would you say how would you summarize maybe some of the biggest changes is is that something you kind of have on the tip of your tongue there (laughs) yeah um i would say probably that the biggest difference um is probably
2: the, the player has more agency I think in, in what's going on um, by which I mean you've got more decisions to make, uh, you've got more options available to you, I mean t- in my mind uh, game design, good game design is all about giving the player decisions agreed, yeah. wherever possible and um, so original Necromunda you know on your turn you move all your guys, you shoot with all your guys you're making a few choices about where they're going to move and what they're going to shoot at but they're still very much doing a very limited uh, variety of things whereas in this um there's a whole activation system so you're activating one model at a time going back and forth between the two players you might activate one of your leaders or champions who can bring a couple other others with them as they activate and then when they do activate they're doing various different things so they might be um you know making an aimed shot or uh you know charging into a into a combat ducking for cover there are various things that aren't just moving and shooting we wanted to kind of really incorporate um so that that's that's kind of that's to me the main difference is the player can do more stuff
0: um
2: yeah but alternating really...
0: activations is I yeah mean, that's a huge um not to be facetious but that's like a huge step for games workshop <laughs> um, it is it's know, dragging it's, it kicking and screaming yeah. into the mid noughties you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> But um, the one thing I noticed, uh, there were two things that I noticed uh, just from the White Dwarf that came out. I've been pouring through it, obviously. Um, The the Alternating Activations is huge, but you've also introduced uh, card play, which I was pretty interested in. Because I personally am a huge fan of anything card driven where you've got sort of a hidden agenda. You know, what might they have? What do I got? When's the best time to play this? Uh, How does the card play actually work?
2: So you've got um, two types of cards in the game. Uh, the first one is you've got fighter cards. So every ganger you've got in your in your force uh, has a card which has their their stats on, on it. Um, and there's a bunch of those pre-filled out and a bunch of ones mm-hmm. that you can fill out separately. Uh, I pushed really hard. I, I, I was really um, pushing with the... Uh, people who kind of make you know decisions on what goes in the box to make sure that the cards were a nice matte finish if you if you're drawing on them so you can draw on a pencil and erase it quite quite easily because oh, nice. I've, I've tried erasing glossy cards and it just doesn't work but um yes yeah, so you've got that um and that idea straight away does a few things uh, first of all it means that if you have to say pick three random fighters to be your sentries you can just shuffle your deck and deal them out that's nice and easy um during the game we had a big drive to not uh clutter up the gaming area with tokens and things so when you want to put a token saying this guy's taking a flesh wound or uh, he's out of ammo that goes on their fighter card rather than on, on on the board so the board stays looking nice and is uncluttered so that's kind of the first type of card you've got secondly you've got tactics cards which are basically, a complete borrow from Blood Bowl. So in Blood Bowl you have special play cards, which um they're kind of an optional extra, but mm. we've integrated them a bit more here. Um you have a deck of I think it's ten standard tactics cards, and there are two duplicate sets in the box. So each player has a deck of ten, um, plus you have ones that are specific to your faction. So in the box you've got four additional Escher cards and four Goliath cards. One for each of the two gangs, that is, um, and I think there are some expansion packs coming out with more of those. But the idea is at the start of the game, uh, depending on which scenario you're playing, you can pick a couple of these cards. Sometimes, uh, if, for example, it's a surprise attack, the defender might get a couple at random rather than choosing. Um, hmm. And then they're kind of things. you They're like one-use cards you play, and they'll do a thing. Um, <clears throat> so things like picking up an improvised weapon or uh, you know, you've actually got a pistol hidden in your belt that the opponent didn't know about, or uh, as one of my favourite ones is I think, the Last Gasp, which is when you die you get to make one more attack, and if it's a grenade, if you've got a grenade, you can centre it on yourself and it doesn't scatter, you can blow yourself up as you as, as you go, which <laughs> let's face it, you know, that's just cool yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're just kind of little cunning tricks which, as you say, the whole point is it's, it's meaning that your opponent has imperfect information, they can't guess exactly what you're gonna do in in your turn and they might only come up once or twice in the game because they're limited use cards. Um and we don't want to make it a complete random take that fest. Um but they just add a bit of flavour. Also the fact that we've got the ones that are tailored to the different gangs, they let you really play up the flavour and the theme of them. So the the Goliath decks all about being a big Steroided meathead who doesn't die easily. You know the Esher ones about being kind of sneaky and using chemical weapons, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I noticed so one yeah. of the Esher
1: ones lets you like after setup you can reveal it, and it's like, okay, now I get to move all of my figures a couple inches <laughs> yeah, forward. Absolutely. So I'm going to change the setup of this this game because we snuck yeah. in. You know, that's that's, that's cool. It.
0: Yeah, and so you mentioned you most of the time you get choice, so you can take a look at the scenario and the layout and go, oh well, you know, for this time I might use these these three instead of these others and stuff like that.
2: That's it, and a lot of the time um, in the scenarios you'll be picking your, your kind of your crew um, in secret. So your, so your gang is kind of all your fighters. So if you're playing with the default ones from the box, that's your ten fighters who make up your gang. But in a scenario, you'll generally pick a crew of a number of them, depending on which one it is you're playing. And you'll tend to play... So you'll pick those and your tactics cards all face down. Uh, so you don't know what the other person is bringing until the, the game starts, really. Right. So um, you, yeah, you're kind of looking at them thinking, right, in this scenario, I know what their mission is going to be. Are they likely to bring uh, their big you know, combat guys or whatever? And you can pick your tactics cards accordingly. Um, cool. When you get to Gang War and you've got kind of the, the campaign mode, uh, you get lots of situations where you might be ambushing the other gang And you'll be picking all your really sneaky, dirty tricks uh, From the deck as well So it all, all kind of works together to, to really add a bit of
0: narrative and theme to the game That sounds great, I can't wait <laughs> <laughs> Excellent um, So speaking of let's see, Escher and Goliath Yeah. I, I noticed that they're very, I would say In many ways, very different factions mm. Uh, yeah, aesthetically, um, it seems like mechanically to a degree, and maybe strategically, all that good stuff. Is that kind of why you you guys chose that? Because they were just two very different teams.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, part of it was we wanted the theme to be the guys with big hair, but um, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's true they all have very big hair. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. They, they, they both sets of miniatures have separate hair pieces. I'm guessing Rodney, you will have noticed this when you build them. You, oh you yeah, have the face and the hair are separate, which is cool um but uh yeah so i think uh so andy uh, my boss at the time it was his call to kind of decide which gangs went in there and um he was really keen to get two very different gangs and uh in the box game that came out back in the 90s it was orlocks and goliath who are both kind of straightforward tough guy right kind of things whereas here we you know let's switch it up so you kind of got Escher, who are much quicker, you know, they're they're sneaky. They've got that whole kind of thing going on against the Goliath, who are very straightforward. It's just kind of a, a really nice contrast,
0: um, right? And so, Goliath seems to me, having not played, to be more melee oriented versus.
2: Uh, yeah, definitely, range. they're kind of uh, melee, uh, short range, uh, mm-hmm. high rate of fire kind of stuff. Um, gotcha. Subtlety doesn't really happen. with the goliaths you know um also in one one difference from the previous edition of the game is that it used to be that your starting gang was pretty much identical whichever house you chose so an esher and a goliath gang they had the same stat profile i think you had a few different weapon options when you were a starting gang depending on which one you were but overall uh, a ganger was a ganger Mm-hmm. Whereas we've taken the opportunity to go, actually, this it feels wrong that this hulking great, nearly seven-foot dude has the same profile as the right. Maybe let's change it up. So they've now got their own bespoke profile, um, which I just think it makes it more interesting. It means that when you come to pick your your gang, you can kind of even go just by the visual. You'll get an idea of what they can do in the game. Look at Goliaths. They look big and tough. And funnily enough, yeah, they're big
0: and tough. mm mm-hmm. You didn't. Now you mentioned they have uh, stat cards yes. for each of them, but in a campaign, um, how is the progression going to work? Because I'm just putting this out there. So, do yeah. you choose one of those characters and one of those stat cards, or is it a different sort of process when you um, sort of initially create your gang?
2: So what happens is, uh, so you've got two things. So first of all, in the box game, you've got your uh, blank cards. So in the box game, there's like a simplified set of uh, rules for creating a gang for one-off games. So you you, you can just create a rough and ready, uh, here's a goliath gang. In Gang War, we introduce a full set of campaign rules for creating a gang. So what you'll have is you'll, you'll still have your blank cards. You'll fill them in as you go. Uh, so you won't use the pre-generated ones. You'll actually you'll create them from scratch. Okay. Um, and you'll also use a gang roster sheet, like the ones the Necromunda used to have. Uh, where you, you're kind of you're recording uh, various things like your the size of your turf, any special territories you've picked up, uh, any skills or you know any advancements gained by your your fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're still using that, that, that deck of, of of fighter cards. What we have done, I'm quite happy with this. Um, in my experience, games like Necromunda, Blood Bowl, Blood Bowl's a real big culprit for this. When you start leveling up your guys you have to really remember who's got what special skill and yeah. it, it can <laughs> yeah. be quite a drag yeah the big benefit of having your fighter cards is that everyone's got their stats right there
1: you i know, love that See yep. exactly
2: what it is. but also we've done a dividing line i don't think this has actually been discussed on anywhere yet so this could be an Ugh, exclusive piece it. of information yes, um, yes. <laughs> we've divided the gang so to speak into you've got your kind of your main characters so your uh, leader your champions your juves who if this mm-hmm. were a tv series if this was sons of anarchy or one of those kind of tv series about your gang these are the guys who are kind of front and center the main cast the gangers who traditionally have kind of been uh, the bulk of the gang they're still the bulk of the gang but they're they're kind of background characters they're all still individually named uh they all still have the ability to progress But when a ganger gets an advancement, they do it differently to your other characters. So uh, in the game, you'll get experience points. You'll mark those down on your roster sheet. When you get to, I think, six experience points for a ganger, you roll 2d6 on a table, and one of their stats will increase. So they're not getting a new skill or anything that you have to refer to elsewhere. It's just a straightforward stat increase that is just visible on their card. So you can see it straight away. Your your more prominent fighters, you spend their XP however you like. So you uh, various advancements have different costs, and you go right. I'm going to give this guy a weapon skill upgrade. It costs this much because he's my my combat guy, mm-hmm. um, and they can also they they can get skills, which are kind of you know it will have a little keyword on the uh, on the card, and you look that up in the book. It means the number of skills in your gang is much reduced compared to old necromunda so you're not having to remember quite as many obscure rules which i think's a win um but it also means it kind of it focuses uh the narrative on those more prominent characters but gangers when they make that 2d6 role to see what advancement they get one of the things they can get on a double one or double six is they become a specialist which lets them level up from that point onwards as though they were a champion or leader
1: oh cool okay. so so they move into you, the you foreground still... of your gang a little bit more
2: yeah, that kind of thing of a, a background character stepping stepping up. And so, I mean for me that that was one of the big joys of Necromunda, seeing your kind of nobody rock bottom juve or, or ganger eventually become the leader of your gang. And that, that can still happen here.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: I remember I remember with well, the, you... the other uh, go ahead. Well I was just gonna say I remember like with the old Necromunda, you know, if you upgraded your character they might get a new weapon or they might get something else, and then you were kind of obligated yeah. to like snap the plastic gun off your miniature <laughs> yeah. and, and glue on something yeah. else. is that still the case or what's
2: what's it's happening? Actually there? we we addressed that. I think that there's a designer's designer's note box out which literally says, put away the clippers. Good. Um, <laughs> because so the idea is when so again, one of the things that makes gangers different from the other members of your gang is that when you buy a ganger, you pick their equipment. They now have that, and they can't get rid of it. The the idea is that you know, that's Zeke who has his shotgun, that's his shotgun. He's not getting get rid of that shotgun, that's his weapon. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you want to get a you know, a ganger with something different, you'll buy a new ganger into the gang.
1: Right, um, right
2: your more prominent characters, leaders, champions, whatever else, they can have different uh, loadouts. And so what you'll do is you might have two different fighter cards for your leader with two different miniatures. And when you come to play, you'll pick which one you use. So we wanted to make it an additive thing rather than a thing where you have to destroy a model you've spent time painting. Because Mm -hmm. in my experience one in 50 people will do it everyone else will just go oh by the way he's actually got a plasma gun
1: now. exactly right. yeah no No. i lo- I think that's great and hey if i want to just buy a new model that looks like this other loadout i can do that 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 seems precisely, sensible to me yeah, yeah. well and, and even the just the
0: having the cards
2: now, yeah precisely yeah you just you have that there that's nice and straightforward you know exactly what it is
1: i have to say there's one question sort of like you've talked about the goliath and the Eshers and that's that's wonderful i'm pleased to see those models but um yep I suppose the general question I should be asking is, do you have plans for other gangs and so on? But I don't really care. I want to know, when's Dalak coming? So are they coming? <laughs> DeLac yeah. is was the Ooh, gang I, think... I rolled with. But I guess in general, do you have other plans for the other original gangs? Maybe even some new ones?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't anymore, unfortunately. But uh, I do know that there, there are plans uh, to release all four of the remaining six uh, main house gangs in 2018. I'm not sure of any d- details beyond that. Before I left, uh, they were working on all of them. There were some really interesting discussions on what they are, and again, it's looking at how to diversify them slightly. So, in the way that we've really ramped up the big meathead aspect of Goliath, uh, we, we looked, for example, with Dalak, How do you make them the ultimate spy masters and sneaky gits? Um, right, so there right. Was lots
1: of talk of them
2: using. Uh... Give them
1: longer trench coats. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> the length of your trench coat is a mark of uh, you know, your rank within the gang. Uh, but yeah, having like uh, using like illegal drugs like spook to manifest psychic powers, to make them telepathic, all this kind of thing. Oh, that sounds awesome. Um, and when I was working on like the initial ideas for their armory, it was lots of non lethal weapons, so like webbers and uh, needle rifles, things that can take someone down and capture them. Because I mean, the the, the campaign system has full rules for capturing enemy fighters. And to me, that's one of the things that Delac should do really well. Uh, they should be able to capture you, squeeze you for information, and then sell you on.
1: I love that. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, all, all,
2: all the other gangs, everything that's, that's existed for Necromunda is looking at getting a, a, a redo. And there are lots of new ideas as well that I know are filtering through. So it's a good time.
1: Well, you definitely couldn't have picked a lack cause with this set if you're going for the big hair, because the, they're all bald. So it would not have... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Although I could argue that would make for a nice contrast if we were going for contrast, but I, I will there patiently await. I will patiently wait. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so, so will I, because I, as I say,
2: I, I'm now on the outside looking in, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with all
0: that <laughs> stuff. So just a tangent a little bit, as somebody that does enjoy Shadow War Armageddon, yeah. Um, there was a I don't know if I don't know if it is founded, but there was a somebody was quoted that, at works at Games Workshop that there was going to be support uh, for Shadow War moving forward and I w- I'm always curious about because uh, there, there's a supplement actually that you can use gangers in yeah. Shadow War, and that's always kind of interesting like okay, these are space Marines or <laughs> uh, chaos Marines and yeah. they're going to be fighting, you know, Eshers, that's not really a fair fight. Yeah, no. And I was curious if you knew of anything that was going to be some kind of crossover, because they're in the same universe, but they're yeah. obviously different sort of tiers. I
2: know, I mean, as far as I'm, I'm aware, um, there aren't plans to directly cross over the two, because as you, as you say, it's kind of a matter of, of scaling, really. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: So, for example, in Necromunda, uh, a couple of the weapons are a bit more beefed up than they are in 40k, because you kind of you're zoomed in so uh bolt guns are a bit more like what you'd expect a bolt gun to be if you read read the backstory (laughs) um so get shooting shooting someone with a bolt gun they're not going to shrug that off they're going to have a really really bad day (laughs) um and i think it's it's one of those things where there's an abstraction where just because um a space marine and uh a ganger might have the same strength value you know, it's that that's compared to the the arena that they're fighting in. So I think right. if you were to port a Space Marine into Necromunda, you'd have to beef them up to such a degree um, that it would kind of be entirely unfair. Uh, right. So I, as far as I'm aware, I think things are being kept separate. I know there was there were mumblings of maybe introducing you know some of the things like uh, Chaos cults, uh, Gene Stealer cults, the kind of the, the, the your more civilian type yeah. side of Forty K right. could make its way into Necromunda at some point. But uh, I'm not entirely sure,
0: I, you
1: know. We'll see.
0: Well, I, Maradi, do you have any other Necromunda-related questions? I wanted to transition into some more James Hewitt-related questions. Uh, no, I,
1: I, I feel like I've gotten a nice little feast of information there. I'm, I'm really excited. So, no, that, that's great. If you've got some other tangential questions, I'm curious to hear them.
0: Well, James, you mentioned uh, a bit ago that you were working on this, and this was, I believe you said this was the third thing that you worked on. Yes. At, at, while at GW and are there, are there other things coming out that will have the James Hewitt touch to it?
2: <laughs> yeah, so, um, so our team started in, I think it was March last year, and um, it wasn't until November that uh, Blood Bowl was released. So Blood Bowl came out, um, but before it came out, we had several months during which um, I finished off uh, Blood Bowl itself. It had already been started before I got there. Um, and then I spent a lovely, I think it was about eight eight months eight eight months of of the year working on uh, a revamp of Adeptus Titanicus, which was a classic game from the eighties. Oh. Big, uh, massive Titanic robots, just absolutely slugging each other with big guns and things. And <laughs> uh, that was a it was a real labour of love. What what was nice was because it was I was working on it before Blood Bowl came out. We were under the radar. no one was looking at us. Um, As soon as Blood Bowl came out and was very successful, all eyes swiveled towards us. But before Mm. then, I was able to kind of spend a lot of time doing lots of R&D, lots of testing, really kind of making this game as cool as it could be. Um, Ironically, it then got pushed back um, and pushed back and pushed back for various different reasons. When you've got a company the size of Games Workshop, uh, trying to find a release window for a, a a new game launch is is no mean feat. And also, there was a decision halfway through. In, initially, it was going to be a very small-scale specialist game. Uh, all the Titans were going to be in Forge World Resin, uh, which wow. is all, yeah, all <laughs> hand-cast. It, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's quite labor-intensive to produce it. Um, at some point, some some of the forecasting team, I think, said, hang on, this is going to do really, really well if we want to supply uh, X many copies of the game, we'll need to make this many titans. We should have started a year ago. (laughs) And so the decision was made instead to do it in plastic rather than resin, which is a winner for everyone involved. Uh, Not for Chris, who was our sculptor on the team, who, having just finished scaling down the Warhammer 40,000 titans into that scale, had to redo it all over again because... Uh sculpting plastic models is a very different experience i think oh. he's been there about a year and a half now and it, all he's worked on is titans and uh one day he'll be allowed to do something else sorry he did the uh, death roller for blood ball <laughs> 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 whenever there was like a show and we'd be sat behind a desk with things we'd worked on chris would just be going yeah still titans still just <laughs> Titans," and i can't show you them yet i can show you nothing um but yeah long story short that game is coming out eventually at some point i think hopefully early next year we'll see though um weirdly we actually we've already shown it off we we did a a demo of the game uh back at the horus heresy weekender it was an event back in february and i i ran a couple of large scale so 40k scale games i literally spent about a week making some big foam card buildings and scaled up tape measures and huge accoutrements and ran the game and it was it, everyone really enjoyed it so
0: is it just uh just titans or yes. is there okay
2: so uh and early on there was a, a lot of discussion about do we go do we remake epic as it was right. which was you know your big scale battles lots of troops or do we focus just on titans and the answer was focus on titans because if, if you want to do epic properly You've kind of got to do one of everything in Warhammer 40,000 at that scale, mm. and uh, even though a lot of it's sculpted d- digitally these days, um, even kind of debigifying a thing it takes you know even uh, at least a month because you have to do so much reengineering to make it work at that scale, right. and it would just be such a suck on resources. We were like, well, also, let's just focus on a game that's about really cool big robot battles and go from there. So, so that game. You know, you're you're really in the position of uh, you you are commanding that titan. You are channeling power to different weapon systems. You're tracking individual locational damage. Right. Uh, it's it's good fun.
1: How big are these uh, titans? Well, like as a model, how tall is this?
2: They are kind of uh, so to give you a an idea of scale, uh, the the warlord titan, which is like the, the the big one, the the main mm-hmm. class of titan, is probably uh, about eight inches tall i would say oh, wow. roughly okay. uh, <laughs> so that they're, they're bigger
0: than they used to be back in the day uh but they look really cool wow so <laughs> how many titans does each team get can you you know so you start with probably a handful in the box and can you scale it up to have like 20 on a side maybe that's so one, but...
2: yeah the default kind of game that where it where it plays really really smoothly and nicely is between three and five titans with maybe a handful of knights skirmishing uh that's uh, you can absolutely play play bigger but it, it just starts to slow down but i mean we've actually what i'm really proud of is i, I played a few games uh like one on one so literally two titans on the table one each side and there were still interesting decisions to be made it was, there were still interesting strategies to 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 to, to think about even at that point, where you have one Titan each, and that was very intentional, because if they were going to be an all resin release, it could be that one of those Titans was going to be sixty or seventy pounds, or right, I, I right, don't yeah. know how many dollars that is. But you'd have to, you'd have to make it an interesting game with just one model aside, and I think we achieved that. So I, uh, yeah.
0: I guess one other question about that: um, I haven't played the original. Um, yeah, is it is it sort of a, is it a more close port like as akin to Blood Bowl, or is it more of a deviation like Necromunda?
2: It's more of a Necromunda situation. What we did was we we looked at the all the different games we've done that involved Titans in the past. Uh, so Adeptus Titanicus had kind of two and a half versions as that game, plus about three different editions of of Epic in different guises. So there was lots to draw on, and also I looked back at things like. Heavy gear, battle tech, uh, mech warrior—anything that involved big robots fighting—and just kind of drew on all different inspirations. Uh, I kind of went pretty deep on the R&D <laughs> with this one, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so it feels like an amalgam, but it hopefully draws kind of cool bits. If people have played the originals, they will recognise certain elements from different parts. Okay, that's something cool. From, cool. To well, look I'm forward excited to. for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Well, when it comes out, give me a shout, and I'll come back on, and we can talk Perfect. more about it. Perfect.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. We'll well, make this an annual thing. What else you got in the GW pipeline, eh?
2: <laughs> That's pretty much it, actually. That that'll be the last thing that I did when I was working there, or rather the earlier thing. But that that'll be me exhausted by that point. Although I have, since I've been a freelancer, I've done another uh, self-contained board game for Games Workshop, but that's. That's all very hush-hush, and I can't tell you oh. any more
0: than I've already oh, said. Oh, man. <laughs> Silver Tower 2. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes out, I'll wave my arms around online and you'll know.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing other designs outside GW right now? or? Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, when I first uh, started up Needy Cat Games, which is my little company, I was mainly doing a few bits and pieces for Games Workshop, uh, mainly tying up loose ends uh, from, from, you know, where I'd left. But uh, now I'm pretty much exclusively working for other people. So uh, one of the reasons I was at uh, Essen last week, I I went to have lots of meetings and catch up with people. Uh, So I've got lots of little freelance projects on the go. I'm doing a, a game for a company called Room 17 Games who have just put a Kickstarter out. And we've got a few projects on the go there, one of which actually is again i can't i'm sworn to secrecy but it's basically another revamp of an old game so right. that's quite that's quite cool yeah. to get to do that in again. your wheelhouse it seems um, like yeah <laughs> i'm i'm absolutely pigeonholing myself but i'm okay with that <laughs> um eventually i want to i've got three or four designs of my own that i really want to kind of work on but i'm just i haven't found the time i've been too busy which is a good problem to have
1: well, you were at Essen. Was there anything that you picked up there just for your own enjoyment? I know you're, you're running short on time probably for playing games, but what sort of games do you like to break out and play yourself? Uh,
2: so I picked up... Uh, I, I Actually, I, I, I was pretty good at Essen. Uh, last time I went, I came back with, I think, 14 games. I came back with <laughs> three this time. No, two, in fact, two games. Okay. Uh, three. Three, it was three. So I picked up uh, Junk Art, which I've had my eye on for a while, which is...
1: Uh, super fun. I like...
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I like dexterity games, and I I don't know the story behind it, but I have got a suspicion. So I, I've got a toddler; she's two years old, and she has lots of building blocks and things. And the number of times I've sat with a, a pile of building blocks and thought, "There's got to be a game in stacking these up," <laughs> and I, I I can't help wondering if the junk art, you know, if that's where that came from. Um, but yeah, picked that up. Uh, picked up Magic Maze as well, which I haven't had a chance to play yet, but I'm. I run a little local gaming club, and I'm taking it along on Monday, so I'm looking forward to trying that. I, um, I wish I could play I,
1: that game. I, I have it. I play it with people. Yeah. I can play one scenario, maybe two if I'm lucky, and then no one wants to continue playing. It's a really? very high. It's a very high-stress game, and I don't <laughs> mind that. Yeah. But other people, it drives them bonkers. <laughs> yeah. So I
2: think it's one of those you've got to find the right people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rodney, um,
0: when you start throwing things at people... <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. hey.
1: It was it was just aggressively pushed in your direction. It wasn't thrown. <laughs> uh, um, and the other thing
2: I picked up was I picked up the three new um, exit the game. You know the escape yeah, room yeah. little mm-hmm. like uh, mini game. I, I've played one of them so far, and it really blew me away. I wasn't expecting much. I picked it up because uh, it was it was a bit of research for something else I was working on, and it really it made me smile because it had some really clever little ideas in it. And so i've picked up three more of those uh we'll see how they go um but yeah no i mean i I play a lot of different stuff um probably one of my enduring favorites is stronghold uh which is uh from portal games uh, that's the one yes indeed yeah um haven't played second edition but i love first edition it was one of the i picked it up last time i was at essen actually uh, a few years ago and i just i just really like it i like the fact that it's got this kind of it's it's very thematic while still not feeling too swingy you know a lot of Mm -hmm. what goes on is very much down to your own decisions and i love the idea that when you're the attacker everything you do gives the defender something to do back against you it's i I like that a lot you know
1: (laughs) it seems crazy to me that as the king of second edition design that you yeah. have not picked up the second edition of Stronghold. <laughs> I know, right? I know. What's that about? What is that? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely should. And
2: uh, again, I've just picked up a copy of Twilight Imperium, third edition. Okay. Well, third edition? <laughs> yeah, third edition, yeah. because Wait, um, you're, you're still an
1: edition behind.
2: <laughs> exactly, yeah. But my reason for it was, actually, um, I've, I've wanted Twilight Imperium for... Uh, a long time it's been kind of like the the great white whale in in my gaming collection it's like one day i will have this uh but i've never found it at a price that i wanted to pay um for a game i knew i would very rarely get to actually bring to the table but then recently of course because fourth edition has come out lots of them have turned up quite cheap on the second hand market i was like i'm gonna get this and i'm gonna and it'll live on my shelf and one day in about 10 years time
0: i'll play it and that'll be it i'm I'm happy (laughs) well I think that's all the questions we have, uh, Rodney, unless you have some more questions. No, I think that's great. I feel like I've
1: got a good dose of Necromunda. I've learned a little bit about James. I'm excited about really? new stuff coming out and new projects he's got coming out. All sounds great.
2: <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Guys, thank you so much for having me on board. It's, it, it's, it's been a really, really fun time. I've enjoyed myself.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, staying up late. It's quite reasonable hour for me. It is quite unreasonable <laughs> for you at this time. It must be midnight.
2: It is twenty past midnight. Yeah, twenty past. I think I think I was awake at half five this morning. So, if you play this back, and I'm not actually using words, I'm just honking and gibbering, then I wouldn't be surprised. That would explain it.
1: (laughs) This is a treat for me because normally when I do stuff with these guys, I'm the one who's way ahead of time. But you're way past me. So there you go.
0: That would be it. Well, James, yeah, I really appreciate uh, you coming on, and you as well, Rodney. Of course. Oh, and, it was, it was uh, a treat for up. me.
1: I, I feel like it was a gift. Thank you, Joel. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I'm and I'm the same. Uh, you know, James, I've been a fan of uh, Silver Tower, uh, a huge fan of that. I blame <laughs> you for literally probably every single miniature I have upstairs painted, uh, because that game got me into just, I, I, I love the game, and then I was like, I can't play with these gray, ugly things <laughs> anymore.
2: That, that, that's how i found that's how i found you because I, I i i was trawling the board game geek uh, forums uh, as i tend to do and I, I saw you post one of your reviews i was like i'm gonna watch what this guy's up to and uh, yeah i've watched your collection grow <laughs> yeah
1: okay so this is just a big circle of blame then because the reason i like i'm doing all this is because of joel joel's like okay necromunda i would have come to on my own but but yeah. after i assembled all the necromunda f- figures and i'm sitting down getting ready to learn the rules the little Age of Sigmar box started calling out to me, because Joel's constantly in my ear about that game, I was like, well, maybe I'll just stop and I'll put together one of those miniatures. And, I, and sure enough, I did, and that's just going to lead to more of them. So it's, it's, it's uh, a slippery you know, slope, man. It, yeah. It's very slippery, yeah. very slippery. <laughs> it is.
0: Brilliant stuff. Okay, gentlemen, once again, thank you. Uh, everybody, hope you enjoyed the interview and got a lot of good information about Necromunda as well as some other uh, tidbits of other things. Um, uh, definitely uh, look forward to the next uh, podcast coming up later. And thank you once again for James and Rodney to join me. A pleasure. Thank you. Right. Anytime. Okay. I hope everyone enjoyed that interview as much as we did. We had a great time putting that together. And I hope there was a lot of good information for you there about uh, Necromunda as well as uh, some other little tidbits uh, that James shared with us about some of the upcoming games and a little bit of the insight into kind of the development process there at Games Workshop, who, as it stands, is kind of a very unique uh, company in terms of their production schedule and, you know, the amount of collaboration and the overall sort of group and large team effort, Uh, you know, compared to most uh, publishers in the board game industry who, uh, by comparison, uh, run a much leaner, operation and you know have a different kind of production schedule and all that kind of stuff so I found that very interesting personally Uh, so let's jump into some reviews and I'm gonna go ahead and review two games and these are not games that I'm going to do videos for Um, the first one is definitely one that I would throw on what I call the blacklist it's not something I would recommend the second one I have a hard time recommending it Uh, but we'll leave that one for a second uh, we'll jump into the first one, and that's going to be Alien Artifacts. This is from Portal Games, and I'm very sort of uh, disappointed to mention that to you because this was one of my top ten anticipated games at Essen, uh, and it was sort of right in my wheelhouse. It was a it was a Portal game, and I like you know 80 percent of the games that they put out roughly. I like their sensibilities and all that kind of cool stuff, and it was right in that 51st state slash uh, Imperial Settlers uh, type of game where it's a lot of card management and you're building up a tableau and all that kind of cool stuff. And it had a real kind of 4X sci-fi style of theme. And so I was really excited about this one thinking it would hit me uh, right between the eyes, but it did not. Uh, I Played this one twice and uh, to just about a person, and I think everybody did not like it. Uh, we didn't have all the same players in both games when we played. And the sort of cutting the story short, the game was just very vanilla. Um, What the idea of the game is, is you have these different sort of powers. You have like science powers and war powers and things like that. And you have different cards that represent them. And when you sort of buy the cards, you can keep them face up for kind of a long-term benefit once you deploy them. Or you can flip them on their side and flip them face down, and that's more of an immediate kind of action that you're going to take. And the resources that you get are these little hand of cards that have these different kind of configurations of resources on them. So you're getting these cards, you're drawing those every turn, and then you're kind of trying to make use of them to activate these different powers and sort of construct these different uh, cards into your tableau to have different special abilities. Uh, and meanwhile, you're managing like a little track of money that you can use to get those cards kind of in the queue and then you use your resources to uh, build and develop them. Uh, And there is a little bit of kind of uh, player versus player attacking in there, but it's real, uh, I don't know, it's real Euro, it's real sort of just not exciting. And so that's the whole kind of crux of the game is it's just not very exciting. And it has one kind of flaw that just pushed it over the edge and to me, I said flaw, for me it's a flaw. I don't know that it's a design flaw, but Uh, You have this thing where uh, when you hurt somebody, you can, uh, instead of like destroying a card, you can put a little token on the card and they have to basically pay a dollar to activate it, which is fine. That's kind of a nice, somewhat friendly way to not completely destroy somebody's card, uh, but you can just kind of attack them and then based on the ability of this like little mini chart, I don't want to call it a chart, but it's like a little list of effects that can happen based on how effectively you attack them. Uh, you can do different things, and maybe destroy some ships and things like that. And uh, but the main effect is you put a little token on one of their little, you know, constructions that they've built, and they can't activate it unless they pay a dollar. And then you can also, you know, use your resources to get rid of them permanently. But the thing that irritated me the most about this is if you went after a strategy of activating these trade powers, uh, you can activate them during the game, and it's somewhat random that they're going to work. But then at the end of the game, you can go through and activate all of them. But if you have uh, no money and you have these little negative tokens stacked on there, it's very easy to gimp somebody that has gone that strategy. Now, they could keep money around to sort of spend at the end of the game and activate. But if you're playing a four-player game and everybody jumps on you, then it becomes... Uh, pretty unwieldy to be able to, uh, you know, stay ahead of the curve. And a two-player game is not going to be that big of a deal. And that's not necessarily like, I don't think it's a bad design implementation. It's just something you have to consider. I just don't like how it comes across, especially at the end of the game, where it's like, okay, I've built all this stuff up, and I'm going to score these endgame points. And then you just kind of tacked all these negative debuff penalties on me just, you know, just to kind of ruin my end game. And I just didn't like how that felt because, it just, you know, like, okay, I'm at the end of the game, and I have to spend all this money, and I'm just going to kind of like passive aggressively just, you know, your game is going to suck, and then, you know, I'm going to do my thing, and you're going to do your thing, and now I've just made your, I've just kind of ruined your engine that you've built spent the whole game building. I just didn't like how that felt at all. Um, so that kind of combined with sort of the real vanilla kind of powers, because the powers are just like, oh, make this cheaper, do this. When you uh, add cards to your display, everything goes up in price, but then you have powers that can ignore that. There was no really flashy powers that, you know, you can see, oh, I built this up and then did this really cool thing. It was just, oh, this is cheaper. Okay, now this is, uh, I can do this with one less ship or I can do this with that. So you're just kind of, is a sort of purely engine building. There wasn't enough kind of trashiness in it to make it feel like it was a spacey, uh, sci-fi kind of attitude. Um, and so, I mean, out of the three, you could say this is kind of the third in the trilogy, even though it's a different designer, of Imperial Settlers 51st State. This is one I would just, there's no reason to get this um, over 51st State or Imperial Settlers or many other games. Uh, so I was, I was pretty disappointed in that one. So that's, uh, that's Alien Artifacts uh, from Portal. Uh, So anyway, that's that one. And then the next game is a little bit tricky because uh, this is a game that I I, I do enjoy, I do have fun with. I can see why people don't like it. And I think the majority of people I've played it with don't like it. They kind of end up kind of, even if they do like it, it's kind of like where I'm at where they kind of like it and they can see that it's fun, but it kind of starts to wear on you. Uh, So that's kind of the takeaway. But Tulip Bubble is a very interesting game. And I do recommend folks probably give it a try, uh, at least. Maybe it's one of those try-before-you-buy kind of ideas. And it's about the uh, tulip bubble crisis, uh, tulip mania, that happened, I think, in the 1500s, 1600s in uh, the Netherlands. And uh, so you have this sort of overinflated different tulip prices And uh, you have like a market of of tulips that come in, and there are different uh, kinds of tulips and different rarities and things. And you have this kind of interesting little bidding round where you put these little tokens on it, kind of declaring that you're going to bid for something. So you can see, okay, who's going for what. And you can get a sense based on the tokens of what's put out, you know, what tulips are going to be removed from the supply because that's going to affect the price of the tulips after everybody's done buying them up. So then that can kind of inform your future uh, places that you put the tokens on. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then once the tokens are on there, if you have your own token on there, you get the card. If there's multiple tokens from multiple players, then you all have kind of a bidding. And then you get the the tulips in your hand. You're trying to basically build uh, sets of them. And there's, there's, like, uh, there's different notations on there, like there's letters and numbers on the different tulips. And so there's a weird little chart. That's, it's a very ingenious little chart to kind of show like the different varieties of tulips and then kind of the specialties within those varieties. And there's a cool track about how those uh, prices are gonna move up and down based on the tulips that are sort of left on the board because you're kind of pulling those tulips out of the supply, out of the general market. And the most rare ones are then gonna jump up and the ones that you've, everybody's left there are gonna fall down. Uh, and then you have these event cards that are going to come up every round and they're going to randomly uh, move tulips up in price or down in price or kind of tank the market. Or there's one card in there that everything will kind of jump up. Not everything, but th- the lowest one will jump up and all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a different kind of random element to it. And that is a, it's very uh, tight economy. So if something drops, it's going to kind of leapfrog the other prices and jump down. It's not just gonna move down one spot, it's gonna jump over anything that's kind of in its way. So it can drop very da- drastically. But you know this going in. So I don't think, again, this is not like a design problem. It's just gonna fit piece, uh, people's uh, palette and their taste. And there's a bunch of cards in there. I think there's three at most that can be in there that are really gonna you know tank um, the market in general. So you're gonna have something you think you're gonna be able to cash in after you've bought. And then it's just going to get tanked, and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's a very, very volatile game, and it's it, it's hilarious in a lot of ways because it will just like ruin you, and then you you know you kind of get back on your feet, and then it'll ruin some other player and stuff. But it, it's very, very random how it works. Uh, but again, you kind of you kind of know that, so you can kind of play around that, and kind of play the long game because you know, uh, given a certain color tulip, you can kind of bet okay you know, it's, it's, it's low on the market now. Uh, if everybody goes after it, then it's going to be rare, it's going to jump up, but then it might be susceptible to kind of a, a big plummet in the price. So you can, you can kind of play around that. Um, and now the other thing that has an interesting about it is not only can you sell back to the market, but you can sell to these collectors. And that's kind of where the set collecting comes in. Yeah, there's different collectors you can go for that you can sell based on the market price, but there's a little bit of a bonus if you get a certain collection of them. Uh, so that's very interesting. Uh, but the way that works out can also be random because if I've got a set that's ready and then Billy there across the table buys it before me because of turn order, and this is huge, then that collector goes away and then a new one may come up, but then I might not have the right set for any of the available collectors that are there. So you're just kind of sitting there on it. And then, you know, okay, you're like, okay, well I'll wait and then the market tanks and they're completely worthless. (laughs) Um, So it's a very quick filler game, takes like 30, 45 minutes. It is fun, you're kind of on the seat of your pants and you just know like danger is around the corner. And that's a really fun part of it and I like that. Um, But there's definitely been plenty and plenty of people that I've played it with that did not like it at all because of that, because I think it just—it feels like it kind of removes the choice from you know, what you've got going on. Uh, but this is one I would recommend people try and check out and play. And it certainly doesn't take that long. And so it, it can be kind of a filler. And if you're kind of into the, maybe a little bit more heavier economic kind of style of games, this could be one that you could kind of fall back into. Because I think there is some depth here to just explore, but there's a lot of heartbreak <laughs> kind of built in. So this is kind of one of those, usually my cutoff for like a blacklist is as I would rate it on BGG a five or lower. Uh, six and up, usually something I'll give a review, but this is one I'd give a six. Um, but there's just been enough people that I've played it with that this would be like, they don't want to ever play it again. Uh, very, very few that said, yeah, I would probably play it once or twice more. I had a good time, but you know they don't really feel like it's a good game, so to speak. Uh, so that's why I'm kind of squeezing that one in here. So that's really all the new things that I've been playing. I've been getting back into Age of Sigmar a little bit more recently and also playing uh, Shades Bar for that matter. Um, but that's not a new game, <laughs> so I'm not going to review those again. But yeah, I've still been enjoying those and uh, I kind of took a little bit of a break from uh, miniatures there for a bit and was just kind of getting back into board games. But now I've been playing some Age of Sigmar and messing around with the... Um, Firestorm and Campaign, which looks like a lot of fun. I'll I'll probably do a review of that relatively soon. But if you think of it, it's kind of like Warhammer Legacy. It's got like a map and stickers, but the stickers are reusable. And I've just kind of been fiddling around, reading through that, and then uh, just kind of playing a couple uh, battles, you know, just – Uh, Separate from that, but uh, just kind of keeping that in mind. So I plan to do something with that uh, in the future. So if you are listening and you are into Age of Sigmar and you have some friends to play it with, I would definitely recommend Firestorm. It looks like just a boatload of fun. Uh, Lots of cool, you know, thematic, narrative, flavorful kinds of things that you can add and there's a map that you can kind of take over and get special artifacts and different special abilities and all that kind of cool stuff. And it's, like I said, it's kind of a legacy slash campaign idea and you can replay it too. So once you play the campaign to its conclusion, you can just kind of peel the stickers off the board and then there's a couple of little modifications you can make. The winner gets a bonus going to the next time, but you can play the campaign over and over and over again and leave some of these little artifacts, um, on the map. And the stickers are really cool. I like these uh, color form stickers. I don't know. I think you had to probably be alive in the 80s to do that. But there's those stickers that you can reuse like a 100 times and they won't lose any of their stick. They're not really sticky, but they just kind of sort of, I don't know, through friction or something, they kind of just stick onto the board. It's really cool. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of what I've been playing lately. And I'll throw in a little bit of the random pop culture thing. I am almost done with Stranger Things Season 2. We've got one more to watch. We're going to watch that here in the next day or so. Really enjoyed this season. Um, it, it probably started off maybe a little bit awkward, but I'm just kind of nitpicking compared to Season 1 because Season 1, I like, like that from maybe the first 10 minutes all the way through the entire season. This one, there's a kind of a couple episodes of sort of catch-up and kind of retelling some things that have sort of you know, been missed in the year, uh, you know, between the two seasons. But once it gets going, like this kind of the level of sort of emotional impact and everything is really heightened, I think, uh, even over season one. So uh, I'm really chomping at the bit to watch the last episode. So we just got to find some time to to set aside because, like I said, everything's been real busy. And the other other little thing, I watched, uh, let's see, Blade Runner 2049 twice now. And uh, that's amazing. And again, this is I think maybe better than the original. Uh, it's just it's kind of slow and plotting. So if you're really into you know lots of action and you want to go into it watching thinking of that, uh, you know just before one, it's a very kind of slow. Long, uh, there's a lot of kind of quiet spaces and things. But I really like what they kind of did with this and how they moved it forward. And it kind of backfilled for me some of the weird parts of the original, there's a couple of scenes in the, in the original that kind of watching now um, are like, you're, you know, they're just really awkward. I mean, I guess the movie is like how many years old now? I, when did it come out? Like in 80. I can't remember when it came out, but so it came out a long time ago. I never saw it in a theater, obviously, but um, there's a weird scene where he goes into somebody's dressing room in the original. It just doesn't make any sense, but kind of, looking at sort of some of the questions they answer and and there's some awkward moments like that. And just in terms of uh, Harrison Ford's character in the original, I'm like, this this is not normal for a person to behave this way. Uh, So yeah, they kind of answers that a little bit um, in a sense. And there's some other strange interactions that were cool because there was kind of like sort of not plot holes, but there were holes that were kind of left there to fill you in. Like, is this, is is this person who I think they are? Are they doing this because of this? And they kind of sort of answer some of those questions without getting too crazy with it, in, in my opinion. They don't like go back and kind of ruin or rewrite the original. They kind of just fill in some of the gaps and then kind of move the story forward. And then it just kind of, you know, sort of, it doesn't in such a way that they're not always explaining things to you, uh, you know, all the time, like, oh, well, this happened. And there's a big flashback sequence of 15 minutes and then they explain everything. Uh, you're just like, oh, okay, this is probably how this relates. So I like when um, when stories do that. Anyway, so I, I definitely recommend that one. And the soundtrack is, the soundtrack in the original is amazing, but the soundtrack in this one I think is even better. Uh, really stark and um, just really powerful in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not equipped to review movie movies at all and this one it just kind of left me speechless I talked about uh, Dunkirk a couple of months ago and that was probably my movie of the year I would put Dunkirk and Blade Runner 2049 up there But I keep hearing that the new Thor is really good and everybody's saying that's their movie of the year But that's kind of my top two if I hadn't if I had to drive through Oscars <laughs> Dunkirk and Blade Runner 2049 would be in a dead heat So we'll see though by the end of the year Okay, well, that is it for this episode of the podcast. Again, really hope you enjoyed the interview and uh, definitely take care of yourselves. And I will speak at you later. Thanks. Bye.